This is the Brickcourt Chambers Centenary Podcast. Hello, I'm Finn Pilbrow, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to this Centenary Podcast series. It's 100 years since what is now Brickcourt Chambers was founded by William Jowett. To mark our 100th birthday, we are bringing together past and present members of Chambers to discuss their experiences in practice, on the bench, and in all sorts of places that a career in law has taken them. Through these conversations, we hope to celebrate past achievements, discuss current issues, and hear opinions on what lies in store in the future. This programme features George Leggett and Harry Matavu. George Leggett, Lord Leggett, came to law from the world of philosophy. After a stint teaching and working in the United States, he joined Brickcourt Chambers in 1985 and quickly established himself as a leading commercial advocate, taking Silk in 1997. After 15 successful years in Silk, he was appointed to the High Court bench in 2012, and his career as a judge has, if anything, been even more meteoric than his career as a practitioner. He went to the Court of Appeal in 2018, and the very next year, 2019, his appointment to the Supreme Court was announced. He was sworn in remotely in April 2020, and has already made his mark with a series of important judgments. Harry Matavu QC is a commanding presence in the worlds of commercial litigation and international arbitration, well known for his work both as an advocate and as an arbitrator. He joined Brick Court as a pupil in 1988, taking Silk in 2010. In 2020, he created, developed and launched the Charter for Black Talent, work that has seen him recognised in the Powerless 2021 as one of the most influential black professionals in the UK and nominated for his outstanding contribution to diversity and inclusion in this year's Chambers Bar Awards. Harry and George got together to talk about judging, becoming a judge, the job of and experience of being a judge, and appointments to and the makeup of the bench. So George, very good to see you. And it's wonderful to have this uh, discussion in person after lockdown. Because what I want to ask as you sit there uh, at the apex of the judiciary is to ask what happens after one has done it all at the bar. You either go to the bench or you go to seed. And many members of these chambers have gone on to the bench. So apart from the knighthood, the gold-plated pension, the fawning and sycophancy from all you encounter, why is it, George, that people go to the bench? Why did you choose to become a judge? Well, I can't speak for people generally, Harry. In my case... It wasn't the knighthood or the fawning and sycophancy, (laughs) nice as that may be. But uh, it's a great thing being at the bar, and I enjoyed it immensely. We had some excellent times doing the MMR case for many years. We did. But I think after I'd acted as an arbitrator and sat as a deputy judge, trying it out, the role, so to speak, it confirmed what I'd always really thought, which is that although it's a very satisfying thing, to argue a case as best you can, and sometimes to have your arguments accepted. It's an even more satisfying thing to get to decide the outcome of the case. So, George, what then was your first experience of being a judge? Well, it wasn't actually dictating the outcome of cases. It was as a recorder in the Crown Court on the Western Circuit, where, of course, you have a jury, which was something I hadn't experienced before at the bar because all my work had been civil work, where we don't have juries. And... It was in the criminal field of practice, which, again, I didn't have experience of. And so that was, well, it was an interesting challenge to uh, learn about not only a new role, but a whole new 
area of the law as well. Now, I must say, I would have found that absolutely terrifying. Was terror one of the emotions you felt when you uh, had to do that? I don't think terror, but there was always a feeling that something might happen that you weren't ready for or weren't quite sure how to deal with. I remember early on, there were a couple of occasions when it all went quiet in court and I sat there waiting for something to happen. But after a while, when nobody said anything, the penny dropped that it must be because they were waiting for me to say something. I can see here a treasure trove of anecdotes beginning to uh, open up. Um, but, but more importantly, and, and slightly more seriously, isn't this a bit of a danger? That in a criminal case where the custody of a defendant or reputations may be very much at stake, the conduct of a trial is left to people who are, I mean, frankly, amateurs. Well, perhaps it is a worry, but there is training that you do as a recorder, which is very good training, I thought, a three-day residential course. You sit in with a judge observing in court, and you've got that judge to speak to during your first week of sitting. The, the cases you're doing, of course, every case, every criminal case is vitally important, but the sort of cases you're going to get as a recorder probably a fight outside the pub in which the defence is self-defence. They're not the most complicated of cases. And there's a fair chance that if you've prepared well, even if in court you have one or two slightly uncomfortable experiences, you're going to do a reasonable job. And in the longer term, once you've started to learn it, hopefully you'll bring the skills that you have of analysing facts and hopefully expressing yourself well and other things that you learn generally as a lawyer to contribute something to the process. And is the bar a hindrance or a help uh, in criminal cases when you're sitting as a, a newly qualified recorder? It's a vital help. I found, certainly on the Western Circuit, that the council were extremely helpful. Possibly sometimes they find it quite refreshing to have somebody who hasn't heard all their arguments before or doesn't come with a slightly cynical approach to it. And... Uh, comes at it with a with a fresh mind. But it's not without its drawbacks. And I note that the Lord Chief Justice said in the foreword to the report on judicial attitudes this year, he said this, that a judge's work is fulfilling, but also often stressful and harrowing, even in normal times, comparing that with the uh, pandemic. Is that what you found with all the experience you've had at the bar going on to the bench, have you found being a judge stressful and harrowing? No, I found the absolute opposite, actually. I found that one thing I hadn't expected about becoming a judge, but I discovered, was how much less stressful it was and is than uh, being at the bar. Why? I don't think I'd realised that it was particularly stressful being at the bar until suddenly the stress wasn't there. Why? Because you don't have clients' expectations riding on your shoulders. You don't have um, emails coming in at 11 o'clock at night, uh, which even as an experienced leader, as you know, you get from time to time, or when you're on holiday, expecting an answer. And when you're in court, you can just sit there and listen or ask some questions. You don't have to be ready to answer any question that might get thrown at you out of left field. It's far less stressful. So... What would you describe then as the essential role of the judge? What, what are you ultimately trying to achieve at first instance and, and as an appellate judge? 
Well, I think there are really two aspects of the judge's role. One is to try to ensure that there's a fair process and that the case is heard in a fair and effective way, particularly at first instance where you're in charge of the court. And then the second aspect is trying to make good decisions and give good reasons for your decisions. Well, let, let's explore that because one of the things I have found at the bar and which has increasingly irritated me uh, about practice at the bar is the habit of certain of my colleagues to assume that they are more effective when they bully their opponents or even seek to bully the bench, a new judge. Did you ever get an experience of having bullying attempted on you when you were uh, uh, first appointed? I can't remember such an experience. Hopefully, having been at the bar for many years, it's, uh, you've learned to stand up for yourself <laughs> from those first days when uh, people would try and lean on you in court when you were against a more senior opponent. And how, as a judge, do you now, would you now deal with bullying advocate on advocate? Well, when it happens, which I don't, haven't myself seen t- terribly often, you have to cut it out at the first, right at the start. I think you have to set the tone in court that um, people wait their turn to speak. And if somebody jumps up, for example, to interrupt their opponent, then I'd say, well, um, that may be a very good point, Mr. Matavu, but um, you'll have your turn in 15 minutes. And at the moment, I'd like to hear what Miss Smith has to say, please. But Harry, that's my experience of things. But what about you? Were you you're making that observation. Obviously, you felt that uh, sometimes there is bullying advocate on advocate in court. What sort of things are you referring to? Good question. I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, as you say, usually senior advocates who think they can take advantage of juniors, who override them and overshout them in court, who present authorities which have not been disclosed prior to the hearing, all the tricks of the nasty tricks of the trade to put a junior off their balance. It's never happened to me personally, but I've seen it happen to co-defendants or uh, other parties' counsel in court, and it's extremely unattractive. And I've also noticed that judges don't always police it as firmly as you've said that they should. Well, I think if you're a firm judge, probably it's likely to happen less. What about judges? Do you think judges' behaviour is um, better or worse overall than... uh... It was when you started at the bar. Very much better, very much better. And I think, certainly in the commercial court, and I think that there's a humility in the judges of the commercial court, an intellectual humility and self-awareness and self-scepticism, which I think is very much more attractive than in the old days. It's hard as a judge to police yourself. That's one of the things I find hardest in court, because... The advocates aren't likely to tell you off if you behave badly. No. So there's nobody there to monitor your behaviour except for you. And I've sometimes found that difficult. For example, I find I tend to talk too much in court. And I try to think that there's a sign on my desk in front of me saying, shut up. Perhaps I would have done better if I'd actually had a sign saying, shut up, sometimes. (laughs) Well, you may just imagine it there. You may see it in the eyebrows of counsel (laughs) in front of you. Which I suppose brings us to the whole question of prejudgment. And we're living in an age where a, a huge amount of advocacy is done in writing. And so we are required at the bar to produce 
ever longer skeletons, although we're told to keep them short. And the problem is, from the bar, that when you provide a skeleton, the judge comes into court with a predetermined view of the case. And they always say it's only a provisional view. But in your experience, is it easy to shift a judge who has read skeletons and formed a view from that view in oral argument? Well, it must depend, mustn't it, on the nature of the case and also, to some extent, the length of the hearing. If it's only quite a short point and the judge has already made up their mind, then it's probably a pretty forlorn. But if it's a more complicated case where the judge may have read the skeletons or think they have but haven't necessarily absorbed or wouldn't have been able to absorb all the complexities of the argument, then yes. I think there's a problem I've seen if the judge has thought that they need to give a judgment there and then and have perhaps already prepared a judgment. Yes. And how have you dealt with that? I tried to deal with it by preparing the start of the judgment, the uncontroversial bits, and then leaving the the hard bit <laughs> to actually do as a real extemporary judgment, recognising that you can improve the transcript afterwards if need be. Yes. Yeah. Do you I mean, find that judges have... Um, come into court sometimes with a pre-prepared judgment even? Yes, very often, very frequently. Not just in the uh, short interlocutory matters, but also in, in longer and more complicated cases involving, for example, uh, conflicts of law points where they're bristling with authorities. They do come in with a preconceived view, perfectly understandably, and it is often very difficult to shift them from that view in oral argument. And I wonder whether there might come a time where we've all just got to say, this is now a written submissions jurisdiction, and we will, like the European Court of Justice or the Supreme Court of the United States, just allow a very limited time for oral argument, because that is the reality of the effectiveness of that mode of uh, discourse. Well, I think that would be a real shame, because I think that if it's properly conducted, the oral argument is immensely valuable. I think that People naturally, and all of us, have a natural tendency to uh, be better at thinking of arguments to justify our preconceived ideas, um, but not so good at criticising our own arguments. Well, on the other hand, we are very good at criticising other people's arguments. And that is what a good adversarial process achieves the two advocates criticising each other's arguments, and the judge asking hopefully some probing questions, which are then getting a response from the advocate. And it's that interaction, I think, which really can improve the quality of um, the result when it works well. So there should be a creative tension between them, uh, bar and bench, uh, with neither doing the entirety of the other's job for them. I think that's an excellent way of putting it. It's also particularly important in a field where you're not familiar yourself. It's not within your specialist area of expertise. Because there you really do rely on the barristers knowing the field to draw your attention to areas of the law because you're not necessarily going to be aware of them otherwise for yourself. Or being able to ask them just a question about to explain something yes. and to get a, a reliable answer. I mean, do you prefer as counsel judges who... Um, ask you a lot of questions, or judges who sit and listen to what you say, or is the ideal somewhere in between? The ideal is, of course, somewhere in between. 
What um, counsel don't like, as you probably recall, is judges who start asking questions even before counsel has opened the case. What I enjoy most as an advocate is the cut and thrust, maybe too uh, aggressive a term for it, but certainly the exchange between bar and bench, an exchange in its best way being an exchange of equals arguing a case in good faith to get to the result which is right for the law. Yeah, I think you put it beautifully, Harry, and um, that exactly is the process, because I think you do reach better decisions through testing out arguments and getting responses through to them. And the reason why, as counsel, you want the judge to ask you questions is because when you know what the judge is thinking, you feel you may have an opportunity to change what they're thinking. Yeah. And if the judge is approaching it the right way with an open mind, uh, then they are prepared to listen and change what they're thinking. Well, I suppose that then takes me to the question of your work on the appellate court, because, of course, the appellate courts are uh, collegiate courts with benches of three in the Court of Appeal, usually, and benches of five or possibly seven or the whole court, in the Miller case, in the Supreme Court. Did you find in the Court of Appeal you had sufficient time for collegiate discussion? So the Court of Appeal works in an extremely collegiate way, and there are three of you, you meet to discuss the case before the hearing, and then you have a chat about where it's going every time there's a break, and then you meet to discuss it for as long as you need to at the end. And so who writes the judgments? Well, in the Court of Appeal, that is pre-assigned, which I'm not sure is always a good thing, but no. uh, the way it works is that the presider of the court, perhaps in discussion with the others, assigns one as the person who, at least if they're in the majority view, uh, will write the judgment, what may be the only judgment. So if you've got, say, three cases during a week, maybe each judge, each one day long, with a reading day on Monday and a judgment writing day on Friday, uh, maybe each one of the judges will get assigned to be the lead judge on one of those. And one, one of the things we look at from the bar is to see who of the three who come into court is going to be the judge who writes the lead judgment. And sometimes you can be very surprised as to who writes the lead judgment. You can judgment. tell, can you? You can always tell, do you think? Well, no, I, th I think you can usually tell, but not invariably. But can I ask you, that? What, why do you think that it's not always a good thing to have a pre-assigned judge writing the lead judgment? I suppose because with the pressure of work, that can sometimes lead to a temptation for the other two judges not to put quite so much effort into that case when they know that they're not the lead judge. It's not as it were that they're idling, but if you've got three cases in the week and you're going to have a judgment to write, and nobody can write a judgment in one day on Friday, so it's going to take more time than that, there's a natural human tendency maybe to focus on the case preparation that you know you're going to be writing the judgment in, perhaps at the expense of the others. And is, it, does the same thing happen in the Supreme Court? No, it works differently in the Supreme Court. There's no pre-assigned judge. It's only once there's the discussion after the case that somebody is asked by the presider to write the first judgment. And what input do your colleagues have into the draft judgment that you're writing? Well, if it's a judgment that you're writing on your own, the answer is nothing until you've produced a, a draft. But at that point, it's circulated to the others who comment on it. And some tend to comment in 
more detailed than others, but I found in the Supreme Court there's a lot more comment and uh, suggestions for things that could be changed on other people's judgments, which I try and take a full part in the process of, uh, than there was in the Court of Appeal. So what are you trying to do when you write judgments? Because, again, my experience of having to read judgments uh, in cases is that there are some judgments which are much more accessible and helpful than others. What would you say, George, is, is Well, you, well you tell me, what, what do you find makes a judgment accessible and helpful and what makes it unhelpful and, or annoying? <laughs> brevity, George, brevity is the, uh, is the first requirement. And the ability to encapsulate principle in a paragraph so that one can go straight to a core principle which the judgment is seeking to enunciate. What is unhelpful to me as a practitioner is having a judgment which takes 10 pages reciting the arguments of counsel uh, before it comes to the discussion of the judge himself or herself. Does that does that well that, that with chimes with all my prejudices uh, or my my views, Harry? Um, I think judgments have got far too long, and I admit to being a, a sinner in that respect. And it, it reminds me of um, something I think Lord Sumption said, but it may be somebody else in a previous podcast uh, in this series that the judicial approach to judgments is to come into court, starting with the answer that one thinks is correct and then to work backwards from that. Is that an accurate description in your experience of the reality of judging? No, I think it's an incomplete description. I think inevitably you start with a sense of what the justice of the case is. I'm sure you do that, don't you do that, when you get instructed in a case and you look at the papers and inevitably you bring your experience to bear and you form a view. Yeah. But then you have to test that against the legal principles and the wider system. And I, I see the process as one, if I can use the expression, that the uh, political philosopher John Rawls used of reflective equilibrium. In other words, one tests one's intuitions against the principles and you perhaps see if the principles can be accommodated or the past cases can be distinguished. But sometimes they can't be, or at least not uh, honestly, in which case you have to modify your starting intuitions. And it's only once you get those into a balance that you feel that confident about the decision you reach. Now, on that point, the extent to which judges rely on their intuition, there may be a danger, uh, this is a question that I'm putting to you, there's a, there may be a danger that over-reliance on intuition is in fact reliance on prejudice. I'm sure it is. There's always a danger of relying on prejudice, but on the other hand, you can't decide a case, or, or you can't decide a case well, without a sense of fairness and justice. So inevitably, you're bringing values to the process. What I think is critical is to be prepared to question and test your starting assumptions, which is why I talked about the to-and-fro process between the rules and principles and your sense of justice to try and reach a harmonious resolution. And what if the debate about justice in the context of a case 
is a debate conducted between people who have exactly the same prejudices and exactly the same sense of justice. Is that helpful? Well, I could see the danger that you're alluding to if it becomes all too cosy. I like to think that at a certain level, people generally have certain shared values and that um, that will be so if it was a jury or if it was a group of judges. Do you think that's so as society becomes ever more plural? Can one still nowadays point to a shared set of values in any particular field which will dictate the common law? Unless one has a body of judges who reflect the plurality of society. Well, is that something you feel, I sense, quite strongly about? Uh, I, I used not to feel this, George, but the more I've thought about it and the more I've done work on the Charter for, for Black Talent, which you may know I've been working on for the last two years, Absolutely. to try to encourage more black representation in particular, but this applies to all ethnic representation, uh, at the bar, which is one of the major sources of appointment to the bench, the more I have come to the view that the absence of diverse voices informing debate on the bench is a danger to the development, the proper development of the common law. Well, I think one does need to distinguish between diversity of background and diversity of view, and the two don't necessarily correspond. Yes. Particularly by the time somebody has been socialised by practising at the bar or in a solicitor's firm for 30 years before they come on the bench, that may be much more important to their outlook than their background. I think there are very good reasons for diversity of background, but... They're not necessarily, in my view, those reasons that um, that you're putting forward. I think it's inherent in the in the in the nature of judging that you're not going to have the experience of things you're judging about. If I'm judging a case about insurance brokers, I've never actually been an insurance broker, and I don't know what it's like. And that's so in everything you do. And what is important to my mind is being able to try and imagine yourself in the position of something that you don't have experience of. And that's what we need judges to do. Now, the example you gave of the insurance broker, I completely understand. That's, in my view, an easy example. Less easy, perhaps, is the example from employment law or discrimination law, where a tribunal is asked to weigh whether, for example, a complainant had a reasonable perception of what was happening to him or her to make it unfair for that treatment to have been meted out to him and or her and to raise an issue of discrimination. Now, if a tribunal does not have on it people who can inform that debate from a lived experience at some stage, isn't that a little dangerous? Well, I could see that there's a strong case for certain areas like employment tribunals, like perhaps uh, maritime arbitration, uh, to take another quite different example, where people who have some first-hand knowledge of the industry or the activity have particular experience to bring to bear, which is is valuable. But you you can't, as a judge, 
have ex point I want to make is that um, as a judge, certainly at higher levels, you, you cannot have experience of uh, the vast range of cases that you're judging, actually what the human experience is like. But what is vital in, in my belief is that you are willing to try and put yourself into the position of the people whose cases that you're trying and to um, and not to come at it with an assumption that your own outlook or experience is everybody else's when it obviously isn't. Well, of course, one person can't have the experience of everybody. I, I, I understand that. But do you at least agree with me on this, that it is very dangerous for the judiciary as a body not to have a diversity of opinion to inform the development of the common law on, for example, issues of reasonableness. Now, what is reasonable in a particular case is going to be informed, is it not, by lived experience. And if the development of the common law over a decade is informed only by the experience of a minority, that must be dangerous. Would you, would you agree with me that far? I agree that it's good to have a range of different opinions amongst uh, judges. I, I don't agree that people's opinions are determined by their uh, background and certainly not by their race or, or, or gender. I think the reasons for wanting to have a diverse bench and what, when that issue is raised are different ones as far as I'm concerned, which is that talents are not the province of um, men or of uh, white people. They're evenly distributed across the population. And if we're only recruiting from one corner of it, then we're missing out. And also, we're not giving people a fair chance. So opinions aren't determined by lived experience, but they should surely be informed by the lived experience of a wide and diverse uh, body of opinion makers, i.e. Jud the judiciary. But I think if you've spent your life as a lawyer, you've, you, your own personal experience is going to be, in that respect, very narrow. Your main source of experience is your vicarious experience from the cases you've done, from the clients you've met. Do you not think that through meeting clients in the cases you've done, you know, that is the way you've learnt about other areas of the world and other areas of, of activity than your own, rather than through having done it yourself? I completely agree with that, and that's been one of the joys of practice at the bar. But it does strike me that when one comes to uh, decide cases and see what is right on an area where you're being asked to consider, for example, reasonable conduct or issues of discrimination or policy uh, considerations, even if you yourself don't have experience of the particular area or particular course of life in question, your decision is inevitably going to be less confident and less certain than if it were informed by the experience at least of fellow judges who have a lived experience to share in the development of the common law. When you have a judiciary which is as narrow as it currently is, that must be a, a danger, not just unsatisfactory, but a danger to the development of the common law. Do you think it's a problem at the bar that feeds into the judiciary? Absolutely. And I don't think that you can solve this issue by appointing one or two individuals from the bar to positions on the judiciary, because one or two unicorns are not going to solve this particular problem.
Well, we can agree about that, Harry, because I'm with you about the absolute importance of diversity. But for me, that's a question of getting the best people and of fairness. And if the judicial system is about anything, it's about fairness, which is giving everybody the opportunity to follow that career and getting the benefit of the talents. But I don't myself see that uh, that necessarily correlates with differences of opinion. It may do. But by the time people have spent 30 years practicing at the bar, there's a sense your outlook is going to be to a very large extent affected by your professional experience. Well, that's your experience, George, of course, but it may not be the experience of an ethnically diverse or a gender diverse or other sort of diverse person who's also practicing at the bar. But well, I, think... I can see if you've experienced discrimination in practice and in your own life, that would give you that would give you an understanding which it's difficult for somebody who hasn't done so to have. I could certainly appreciate that. I suppose the only other the the other main reason for diversity is the perception that it gives to the public. And uh, again, it's been said that a properly functioning judiciary must have the confidence of the people without which it loses its authority and thereby loses its ability to perform its functions. And so it seems to me, and I hope we might be able to agree with this, but we may not, that at least the confidence of the public in the judiciary is eroded for every year that the judiciary remains less than uh, diverse. Would you agree with that? Uh, That may be putting it quite high, but I I do agree that it's important for the judiciary to become more diverse. Of course, it is much more diverse than it used to be, particularly at lower levels of the judiciary, where that still hasn't fed through to the same extent, uh, is in perhaps the higher echelons. I don't necessarily agree with you for reasons I've given that the common law is going to suffer in its quality, but I do agree with you because of the reason I put forward, which is that um, it's important, indeed essential, that uh, the law generally, and the judiciary in particular, should be seen to be open to all talents and all members of society. And if it's perceived not to be, that is a very wrong thing. But on this subject, Harry, I mean, have you thought of becoming a judge? Because you would have a great deal to contribute, not only to the diversity of the bench in in all sorts of ways, but um, to the quality of the decision-making too. So why, why <laughs> well, what's put you off? Well, I'm not sure about the, the, the latter, but yes, I have thought about it, George. And I don't know whether anyone would have me, but I haven't made an application. And I feel now that one of the big drawbacks to being a judge is that you are constitutionally muzzled in what you can say. And I've reached the stage in my career where I've just got a public voice and I can use it given my seniority. And that being the case, I feel that I make a better impact by using my public voice to the extent that I can in raising these issues of diversity than by going on the bench as several of uh, my colleagues have done only to find myself constrained in what I can say and do once I get there. So for the time being, I think I'll, I'll stay where I am, 
having enjoyable conversations with friends of mine who have gone onwards and upwards like you, George, and looking at their career progress with interest whilst trying to do something uh, of my own from my position at the moment. Well, I can't argue with that, Harry. Um, I don't know who's going to listen to this podcast, but if anyone does who had not thought that going on the bench was for them or something they'd ruled out, but perhaps has been encouraged by our conversation to give it a thought, even if it's only one person, then I think that our conversation, as well as being very enjoyable, will have been worthwhile. Thank you, George. Great talking to you. You too, Harry. Thank you for listening to this programme. You can find out more about this special centenary podcast, the other podcasts in this series, and 100 years of Brickcourt Chambers by visiting our website, brickcourt.co.uk, or by following us on Twitter at Brickcourt.